Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 6. It'll be in verses 1 to 14 this morning. Romans 6, 1 to 14 is where we will be. When I was a kid, we had uh, various levels of seriousness to our word, to our promise, to what we said was going to come true. We would go to school, and from first period all the way up to lunch, we would be bartering over what we brought for lunch and what we would trade with the person sitting next to us. I don't know if anybody else did this, but literally, mostly boys, granted, it's mostly boys. We're always thinking about food. We'd come and sit down, and we'd be thinking about what we brought. What'd you bring? Well, this is what I brought. Well, what can I trade? And you're trying to negotiate for a better lunch. And there were varying levels of commitment. As you would find somebody who is a willing partner to trade with you, there were varying levels of commitment that you would get from the person as to the fact that they would trade their lunch with you. One was just their word. That was pretty weak, let's be honest. All right, if somebody said, I'll, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll trade my cookie for your cheese stick, I don't really trust him if that's all he's willing to do is just give me his word. Because he, he might find another more willing participant and the bet's off at that point, okay? And you get to lunch and you're like, what happened to the cookie? And it's all gone. It's somebody else, somebody else has it. Then there was the promise. There was, there was him saying, I promise. I'm not going to talk to anybody else. I'm only going to trade with you. We've worked out this deal. And by the time lunch gets here, it's yours. That was okay. It was all right, but it, it wasn't the best. The creme de la creme was the pinky promise. Okay? At that point, you knew he was serious because if you don't give me your cookie at lunch, I can cut off your pinky, right? That's what that meant. And you'd have that little thing where you just, you'd wrap your pinkies around each other. You pinky promise, I pinky promise. Okay, so we're locked in at that point. My cheese stick is coming to you at lunch and you're giving me your cookie. You can't just tell me that you're going to trade me your cookie for my cheese stick. I don't trust that. I'm going to need you to swear an oath on your little pinky. All right, because some things are so serious that you need to put an actual threat of life in order to assure that your word is true. This morning we're looking at Paul's words concerning baptism and its place in the life of the church. So I want to read this out of Romans 6, 1-14, and then we'll discuss it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has, who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead, will never die again. 
Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for your word that as we talk about it, as we seek to understand it, as we turn it over back and forth in our minds, you allow it to sink down deep into our hearts. There might be lasting change, real motivation for righteousness coming through our understanding of you as you've revealed yourself in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the third sermon in uh, our series on the church, on the DNA, the fabric of the church. If you haven't been a part of the first two sermons or you haven't heard those, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those as these sermons sort of, are, we're trying to build them one on the other and connect them to each other. So listen now and then go back and you know, give yourself a brief history of where we've been in the last couple of weeks. It will really help as we go through this series on the church. Um, in a sermon that I preached a couple of weeks ago, I said that the church is the beneficiary of the covenant promises. So in other words, all the covenant promises that have been made in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. In other words, there's no promise that we could turn to in the Old Testament. We could say that does not belong to Jesus. Jesus owns and has merited all of the benefits, benefits of those covenant promises that God has made in the Old Testament. We found that Christ tore down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, that wall of hostility. He tore it down and he made uh, one new man from the two distinct groups that were there before. And so, Paul says, all the covenant promises of God find their yes in Christ. All of them are fulfilled in Christ. God has granted him all the blessings of the covenants. So they're all his. They all belong to Jesus. Now, we, as part of his body, as people that are called by him because of, by, by grace through faith, because of our association with him, exclusively because of our association to him, everything belonging to him which is everything, comes to us. Paul will call us joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ because everything belongs to him. And if he did not spare his own son, what would he hold back from us? He will give us all things. So that helped us to establish a foundation for the church in its entirety. The DNA of the church is Christ's very blood. Without Christ, we have absolutely nothing. And with Christ, we have absolutely everything. There's nothing that is withheld from us because we have Christ. But then last week, 
we looked at God's Word, and we saw that God's Word has always been used to shape and create His people. He has always called His people out. He, every time God speaks, something is shaped, changed, created, reformed. Something happens when God speaks. Back in Genesis 1 even, God speaks into nothing and He created what we might term old creation. He spoke into nothing and created everything that is made. And so now we saw that throughout the ages, not only has He spoken to His people and has He called His people out of Egypt, gathered them around Sinai, spoken to them through His law and taught them and corrected them and shaped them there, But through the ages, He has spoken, and even now, God is speaking through the Bible, His very Word, and through the preaching and teaching that happens in His church on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis, God is speaking to His people, and as His Word goes out, men and women who are dead in their trespasses and sins are being raised from the dead and are being resurrected to newness of life. And so we might look at the preaching and teaching that happens from the Bible on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis as God playing out Genesis 1 all over again, this time not for old creation, but for new creation, citizens of His kingdom as they are coming alive as God is speaking through His Word. So He's bringing about this new creation through time. So far it's taken about 2,000 years of preaching to bring about the people in His kingdom that He has brought about. Men and women are coming to life life at the preaching of salvation through Christ alone. But now, if we're imagining, let's let's just imagine one singular person dead in his trespasses and sins, and this person comes into a church one Sunday morning, or perhaps is at your dinner table, on one evening and this person is hearing the gospel message either from your mouth at your dinner table or perhaps in here as I'm preaching, hearing the gospel. This person hears the gospel that you share with them or that I share with them and they come alive by faith. All of a sudden something clicks in their mind and they see Christ for what He's worth. They see their sin. They realize I'm a sinner, and I'm going to die and go to hell. And they see that Christ has paid for my sins. And now I must repent for my sins. And I must live a life worthy of the calling. I, I must follow Christ with my whole life. Let's say this person comes to that kind of faith. What happens next? Well, they get baptized, right? That's the next step in the process that we would walk them through. They're baptized. Following a credible profession of faith, they are baptized. Perhaps that's weeks later. Perhaps that's months later. It might even be a couple of years later. They're baptized. They walk forward. They go up there in, behind this wall. You see them appear and we dunk them in water. Let's be honest, baptism is a little weird. Isn't it? It's a little strange. We're used to it, 
But if you really stop and think about it, we're dunking someone in water in public on a Sunday when everyone else around them is in church clothes. It's a little strange. We can just own that for just a second. It's a little, it's a little weird. Now, in our society, baptism can either be seen as one of those completely unnecessary things that we don't have to do. That's just getting wet in front of a bunch of people. That's weird, and I don't really need to do that. And honestly, it's a bit outdated, and it has nothing to do with my relationship to Jesus. I still believe in him. I'm still committing my life to him. Why do I have to go in front of a bunch of people and get dunked in a pool? Or a bathtub, as it were. That's really strange. It can either be that, unnecessary, or it can be seen as something that's like a safeguard for our children. Parents, you've probably felt like this maybe a time or two. Maybe that child of yours is wandering. And the only thing that gives you solace at night as you close your eyes on a Saturday night, knowing you're going to get up and go to church the next morning, you close your eyes and you think of your adult child wandering out there. He won't be in church the next Sunday. And you think to yourself, is he saved? I, I don't know if he's saved. And you think back to that time where he got in the water that one time. Well, there was one time where he seemed to have some sort of inkling that he might believe in Jesus and he got in the water. And that gives you some sort of comfort as a sort of safety net for your children. We see this in churches where they baptize infants in some cases, bring them forward. You wouldn't darken the door of a church ever but when it comes to their kids christening, will come forward and have their child christened as a safety blanket in the Baptist churches. Parents thinking about their child, even though my child is not dark in the door of a church in all of their adult life, maybe, just maybe, they're saved. Maybe that baptism had some sort of effect on their soul. So it raises the question for us, why is baptism the next step in the process? Why would one participate in such a, a weird ceremony? And why is this the command that Jesus gives to his disciples in the Great Commission? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. What? Why? Just over a year ago, I preached a sermon on baptism and I, I said there basically all that it means. I tried to collapse it all into one sermon. What all baptism entails. And I'm not going to do that in this sermon this morning. What I'm going to do instead this morning, I would actually recommend you go back and listen to that sermon. Maybe today, if you've got the stamina for it, or perhaps some other time this week. But go back and listen to that sermon. It was preached, uh, I think it was August 19th of last year, in a sermon series called Spirit and Truth, where we looked at worship and what, what worship is. And part of that was baptism as being an integral part to worship. Go back and listen to that to see all that baptism is. I'm not going to do that this morning. Instead, what I'm going to do here is I want us to think mainly about why baptism is so integral to the DNA of the church. 
Why it is such a foundational piece in the church. There's a long passage in Romans that we just read, and I want to hone in on that passage. I want to take just a couple of verses and really hone in on them and talk about why baptism is such a big deal for us and what it signifies. Baptism is, it signifies a couple of things that I think are evident in this text. And the first one we see is that baptism signifies death for our old selves. Baptism signifies death for our old selves. Look at a series of things that Paul says, but starting in Romans 6, uh, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. I want to come back to why Paul says that in just a moment, but before we do that, I want us to think about the origins of baptism. Where baptism actually comes from. This will help, I think, in our understanding of baptism. Specifically, go back in your mind, if you can, all the way back to Matthew chapter 3, where we first encounter John the Baptist. You'll remember the scene, even if you don't remember the passage specifically in Matthew. John the Baptist is standing there in the waters of the Jordan River, and people are getting baptized. And we look at that and we see a bunch of people getting baptized as Southern Baptist. Hey, we think that's normal, all right? You put up a white tent around that, and that's the first revival right there in the Bible, right? I mean, that, that's, that's normal for us. But baptism is not a normal thing for a Jew. In fact, we have no record of Jews ever being baptized until this moment in history. We have no record of it ever happening until this moment in history. Baptism isn't a thing for a Jew. However, baptism had been used by Jews when a Gentile would convert to Judaism. They would be washed. And their washing was a symbol of them discarding this old, sinful, worldly life of unrighteousness, and they would emerge from the water committed to a new relationship with God through Judaism, through worship at the temple. They would be cleansed of that life. So this ceremonial washing and sim was symbolically and ceremonially cleansing them from the stain of the world. Jews would also have a part of their uh, worship process where they would go to the temple. It wasn't a baptism of sorts, but it was a washing in a water where they would walk down the stairs into a cistern. They would wash themselves and then they would walk up the stairs on the other side. The unclean people would come down one side. There would be a divider between the two and the clean people would walk up on the other side. So it wasn't totally unfamiliar, but it wasn't used by Jews in this sense either, in the sense that John is. So here we have John. He's standing here in the river, and he's baptizing Jews, a practice reserved for Gentiles up until that point. And remember what I said a couple of weeks ago as we talked about this same passage. Matthew tells us that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of a particular passage in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, 
verse 3. All right? Isaiah 40, verse 3, and it says this. You'll recognize the passage in Isaiah, even if you don't know it off the top of your head. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Matthew tells us John is fulfilling that verse right there. So as we usually try to do, as we study the Bible, we want to take it in context. And we want to understand what that passage in Isaiah is, is really doing in its, in its context, where it's at in the book of Isaiah. Well, Isaiah chapter 40 comes right after Isaiah chapter 39. I know. You're astounded by that fact. Isaiah 40 comes right after Isaiah 39. Well, Isaiah 39 ends with this. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah responds to that, actually. He's God's speaking to Hezekiah the king. Hezekiah responds to that, well, at least it won't be in my day. Okay, so that's technically how it ends. Really sad, but that, that's essentially how it ends, right there, right? Is with this proclamation, you're going into exile. You're going to go away. Your children are going to go away into Babylon. They're going to be taken into captivity. And that's how chapter 39 ends. Now, if Isaiah was a play, that would be the close of the first act. Three acts in Isaiah, that would be the close of the first act at the end of chapter 39. So imagine if you're in the audience and you're watching this play, you're sitting there and the proclamation that goes out is, hey, everybody, King Hezekiah, you're going to be taken into captivity, your sons are. I mean, hold off, there's not going to be one thing that you've got in this land that's going to last Everything's going to be torn asunder. It's going to be hauled off into captivity. And they're going to live there for a long time. And then this whole scene, the stage, curtain drops, the lights in the auditorium go out, and you as the audience are just left there in the dark. Left to think about those words. That's how act one ends. But then... The light comes on after the intermission. Act two is about to begin. There's a, there's a spotlight <laughs> lands right on this guy who's on stage right, and he walks across the stage, and it follows him right to the middle. He's in front of a dark curtain. It's just him by himself. And he opens Acts, uh, Act two of Isaiah, chapter 40, with these words. Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert highway for our God. Act 2 opens 
with good news to the people of Israel, captivity is over. Isaiah just skipped past it all and landed right there. Here's a preview of what's happening, though. Preview of how the play is going to end. Spoiler alert. Captivity is over. But when is captivity over? Is it when they're released from Babylon? Was it over when they come back and they start building the temple? Remember Cyrus comes in in 539, he releases the Jews to go back and build. About 515, they start building this second temple, even though it's a shabby looking little temple. They start putting it together. Is it over then? No. No, it's over when the Lord comes, like Moses to lead you out of captivity through the wilderness and into the promised land. That's when it's over. And by the way, you'll know that it's over when you hear the voice crying out into the wilderness. Prepare the way, you exiles. All you people who are lost in Babylon, who are scattered hitherto and yon, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What we know looking back is Act 2 doesn't even start until nearly 500 years later. I said this a few weeks ago, but it bears repeating. True return from exile is not really about coming back onto the property. They did that. It's not just about where they're located. He makes clear that their exile was because of sin. And there's no coming back really coming back without forgiveness of sin. There's a problem, God says, between me and you, and there is no coming back unless that problem is resolved. There's no true redemption from exile until that moment. It doesn't matter where the people are physically located, whether in the promised land or scattered hitherto and yon, there is no salvation without forgiveness of sin. But this brings us to the first significance of baptism for the church. How are the people to prepare the way for the Lord? How does John recommend they prepare the way for the Lord? How are people getting ready for His coming to lead them out of spiritual exile and into the promised land. Well, he says in Matthew 3, 6, and they were baptized by John the Baptist in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The message is clear. John is preaching to the exiles, and he's telling them, you have been in exile. You are just like Gentiles. You are just like the world. You know this, people. You are stained from head to toe. And you need to be cleansed. You need to confess your sins as a means of preparing your heart for the kingdom of God that is about to set down. You have been living the life of a pagan. You have been exiled from God. And so when you get into this river, we're going to take that old life of separation from God and we're going to kill it. Now, when we come back to Romans, Paul is answering a question that he anticipates someone asking. 
What should we say then? Are are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who, who died to exile still live in the exile? How can we not live in the promised land now? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death. By baptism into death. Now look at verse 6 to 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So Paul is telling us that in baptism, there is a picture whereby the old man, the person before Jesus, that desired nothing but sin, that desired to sin, that was enslaved to sin, the person that was lost in exile, the person who was without faith, without hope, and without God in the world, the person who was under captivity to Babylon, to Egypt, in sinful slavery, person who, like John was preaching, was in exile under the yoke of darkness. That person walks into the water in baptism and is drowned. Never to rise again. Old man. The person then walks into the water and is drowned and now I know When I say things like that, drowning, killing, we have a lot of sensitive children. The audience I hear on Monday, my kid cried when we got home. I thought you were going to drown him. I'll just say, when we baptize somebody, we pull them up before the bubbles stop. Okay? Right? We don't leave them under very long. We don't actually drown the person, but baptism is a picture of drowning. So when we think of baptism, when, when, when we in the American church think of baptism, for us it's a pretty pleasant picture. The kid or the adult or whoever it is goes forward, gets in the waters of baptism and is baptized. Mom's there taking pictures. We go out to eat afterwards. It's a happy thought. Some churches even give you a cool t-shirt to wear. says you were baptized on a certain day or whatever. Paul's original audience would have seeing the images of baptism as violent images. The word is actually used to immerse into water, and it was used to people dying and and from drowning and ships being sunk in the sea. It's used of cities flooding. They're being baptized. It's Jesus even refers to his own death as a baptism, a drowning, if you will. Imagine someone asking you, When did you get drowned at your church? Imagine wearing a t-shirt that says, My pastor drowned me September 13th, 2020. Not as pretty a picture. So why is baptism so fundamental to our life together in the church? Because the essential proclamation of the gospel is that the old you has to die. There is a problem between you and God. And that old you, that sinful man, that child of Adam, has to die. You can't take it with you into new creation. You can't. It has to die. 
So baptism is a physical picture. You're getting into the waters of baptism and you are pledging before the congregation to kill it. The congregation is actually pledging to you to help you kill it. The pledge that you are making in baptism, as I go into this water, I am pledging to live my life to fight against the old self. To fight to kill the sinful desires that accompany life as a child of Adam. So baptism signifies the death for our old selves, being drowned in the waters of baptism. Second, baptism signifies life for our new selves. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So baptism doesn't merely symbolize death to sin. It it does that for sure. However, Paul points out to us it's also a symbol of a new life created. It's a new life created, resurrected, associating with Christ and saying, I am His now. I am am a new creation. The person is coming up out of the water and he's been resurrected from the dead. That's the picture. He has been resurrected from the dead. The old life of sin that is left there, he has been resurrected as part of a new creation. So this new creation is no longer someone who is without faith, someone who is unable to please God. No, no, this person coming up out of the water is now able to walk in newness of life. This person is able to please God. Now, you'll remember that back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam fell. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We're all guilty. There with Adam, when he fell, when he sinned, we went right there with him. Because Adam was the head of all humanity when he took the plunge and fell into abject sinful poverty He rendered all his children sinfully impoverished. And as proof of that, that we're fallen in Adam, we die. Right? We all die. We know that. We're all going to die. We're going to get old. We're going to die. We know that because we're children of Adam. We are right there with him. This is the point, actually, that Paul is making in Romans chapter 5. Is that death is proof that you're right there with Adam and you're just as guilty. The fact that we die is proof that we've fallen with Adam. But just as Adam represents the head of all humanity, of all the created order, and we might call that old creation, Jesus is a new head. And He represents 
resurrected humanity, or you might say new creation. So people that are members of the new covenant or people that are citizens of this kingdom of God now belong to him by faith. He is our head. He is our spiritual father. The rewards that he gets, we get. Just as the curses that we got from Adam or that he got, we got. So, the baptized person is confessing in front of the congregation that they don't want any part of Adam anymore. I don't want that. That life is going away. I want to be part of all that Jesus has. I want to be a part of new creation. This is the image where we get the phrase born again. We get that from John chapter 3. It's the same idea is that we are born under now the headship of Christ, this time not by physical conjugation of two parents, but by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. But it's not as though baptism saves the person. We're not saying that when you get into the waters of baptism, that when you come up, that that is the salvation that happens. That is the new birth. No, no, no. That is a picture of what has already happened. That is a picture of the already present reality. The person coming up out of the waters is resurrected to life in the new creation under the new covenant where now the Holy Spirit dwells in him. That happens by faith before baptism. That is a picture of that reality that's already taken place. Tracking with me so far? Okay. The reality that has taken place This is what we want to signify in baptism. The reality that has taken place is that God has taken out the heart of stone and He has placed in a heart of flesh with the indwelling Holy Spirit. That has already taken place when the person professes faith in Christ. Okay, As proof of this, Ezekiel says that exact thing in Ezekiel 36, 25-27. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So to come up out of the water is a sign of the spiritual cleansing that Ezekiel is describing here, in which the person being baptized is pledging to continue to walk in newness of life, and this is only made possible. We only believe that they can do that because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that has come into their life and lives inside a person. So what Ezekiel is describing is the life is go- what life is going to be like in the new covenant. When God brings the new covenant, this is what life is going to be like. He's going to put his spirit within his people and they're going to be able to walk in accordance with his laws, with his statutes. But this starts to zero in on why this is particularly important for the church. Back in Matthew 3, John is standing in the river. He's preaching. He's beckoning people to come out of exile, be cleansed, be baptized. 
repent of their sins. And the Pharisees are standing on the shore. And he chastises them. Tells them, who told you to come out here? Calls them a brood of vipers. Which is another way of saying they're children of the devil. The original viper. The original serpent. You're a brood. You're his children. And he tells them this. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So first, the baptism that Jesus is going to baptize with is the Holy Spirit, which is promised in Ezekiel. He's going to come, and he's going to switch out the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. That's what Jesus is coming to bring, baptism of the Holy Spirit. But Pentecostals will run in a different direction with that. That's not, what, that's not what we believe, and that's not what the Bible actually teaches. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit living within. Second, notice what else John tells them there. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is also going to distinguish between those that are inside the kingdom and those that are outside. It's not baptism with water that distinguishes. That's a sign. It's baptism of the Holy Spirit that distinguishes between those that are inside the kingdom and those that are to be thrown into the fire. So think about this with me for just a second. The church is a fellowship of baptized people called by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If that's the case, then a central purpose of the church is living lives of holiness. Why? Because we're telling everybody the Holy Spirit lives within us. It is foundational to the church that we as his people then live lives of holiness. If we're called as the people of God, if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, if we are able to live as citizens of the new created order, then the way we live our lives together as a church actually matters. The way we talk to each other matters. The way we talk about one another matters. The way we live actually testifies to the outside world and to other Christians what life inside the kingdom of God is like. Because we are saying we're inside of it now. As a person who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, I'm living in the kingdom of God right now. So when you look at my life, you should see what life is like inside the kingdom. Does that intimidate you? By the way, this is Paul's conclusion as well in Romans. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Whoa! That's a heck of a command, all right? I mean, think about that, what he's telling you to do. What he's telling me to do. I want to put you in that. <laughs> it's, it's all of us. That's crazy. I want you to imagine for just a minute. Life in eternity. Okay, you, you've mortally perished. Let's say Jesus has come back. Your body has been resurrected from the dead. You are living in the new earth, baby. Jesus on the throne. You're, we're all there with you. All right? We're celebrating. Okay? We're living life together. I want you to think about what your interactions with other people will be like. Surely you've given this some thought at some point in your life. What your interactions with other people around you will actually be like. Right? What you'll say to one another how you'll act. Will you be encouraging or discouraging? Encouraging, right? I'm saying this. I'm hoping you're agreeing with me here. All right? Encouraging. Of course. We know that. Discouragement. No, there won't be any discouragement. Throw that out. We'll be encouraging. Will there be anything that bothers you or gets on your nerves? That you lash out in anger and you're like, it makes me so angry. Stop it. No. Will there be anyone that you are at war with or you feel the need to nitpick? No, there, there won't be. In fact, if there was anything like that that would have bothered you in a previous life, it, it'll just be like, oh, you don't have a problem letting it go. Will there be anyone that you feel the need to gossip about? Slander, talk bad about. No, of course not. I think we all agree on those things. I think when we think about life in eternity, I think we're all on the same page there, and we all have kind of a, at least a very similar picture about what life would be like there. We're thinking about moral perfection. Yeah, life then would just be morally perfect. But what will empower moral perfection? What will be that driving thing in you that will drive moral perfection. Have you ever thought about that? Now, true enough, we won't have a sinful flesh to be an impediment to living that kind of life. That's true. We won't have that. But what will empower us when we, well, I guess we won't wake up, but whatever we do in the morning, I guess there won't be a morning. I don't even know. But what will it be like every day, quote unquote, 100% of our emotions and our affections are always toward the Lord, what will be driving that? Well, it's none other than the Spirit of God. It will be living, He will be living in us, empowering us fully, driving all of our attitudes and affections towards one another. It will be driving our moral perfection with no impediment for the flesh. Right? Amen? You tracking with me so far? We're on the same page? The spirit that will empower obedience then is in you now. That's what Paul's saying. 
same spirit that will be there then is in you now without reservation. Get that. Without reservation. The only thing that keeps us from living holy lives is our own sinful flesh, our attitudes, our desires. But the Spirit is at work in us now. The very same Spirit. So Paul puts this incredible charge to the church. Don't let sin reign. That's all that is. Any bickering between two people, any nitpicking between two people, any war between two people, any gossip between two people, any frustration between two people, all that is is sinful flesh. Those two people are born of God. Those two people are truly a part of the body of Christ. That's all it is. He says, don't let sin reign. You don't have to obey its passions. The world who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, that's all they can do. That's all they've got. It's flesh. You, you have the capacity for obedience. He has put his spirit within you. You have drowned in front of the church. You have told them that you are drowning the flesh. I don't want it anymore. That you are raised and you're walking in eternity now. I'm going to live that life now in the resurrection. So in baptism then, as a church body, what we're doing, having already been converted by the Spirit beforehand, we are now in the waters swearing an oath. More than a pinky promise, we're putting our whole body in the water. All right? We're not wrapping our pinky around another person's pinky. We're putting our body in water as a sign of just how serious I am. You're saying, the old me is gone. It's not coming up out of this water. Nope. When I come up out of this water, I'm living the life of a spirit-indwelt Christian. The old me you knew before I became a Christian, it's gone. And as a sign to you, church, the body that's going into this water is going to die. The body that comes up out of this water wants to submit his entire will to God and the spirit that dwells within me. And by his power, I can do so. By your help, I can do so. This is my oath to you and to the Lord that I am not the same person that I was before. I'm a member of God's new creation. I'm a citizen of his kingdom and his spirit now dwells within me. Well, if that's what baptism is, then it tells us a great deal about our life together. First, it tells us what we should preach, the content of our preaching and teaching. We preach and teach against sin and toward holy living. That's the first thing. It mandates that on us, that, that me standing up here, I preach and teach against sin and toward holy living. And you're going to be reminded of it every week you come in here. And some weeks you're going to leave and you're going to go, that was repetitive, that was the same thing I heard last week. Yes, it is. Because we're commanded to teach and preach this. Death to sin. Living lives of godliness. It changes the style with which we preach. 
You'll notice even in some Baptist churches, you go in and the service will be largely very upbeat, very encouraging. For the most part, the sermon is going to also be that as well, designed to puff you up, meant to give you an inflated sense of self, encourage, and kind of hidden under the guise of encouragement, inflates you, and you go, yeah, I can do it. We can do it, church. Let's do it. We can do it together. Let's do it. Yeah. And then you leave, and you meet those same sins that you met last time, and you're back deflated again. We can do it. We can do it. And it's all giving you an inflated sense of self. I don't want to preach that way. I want to preach repentance. Repent of sin and find forgiveness in Christ and Christ alone. Understand that it is only by His grace that we are welcomed into His presence at all. He knows your sin and He knew it all before you came here. So confess it to Him. Own up to it. You walk out and you say, well, man, it makes me feel really bad. It should make you feel really good about Christ. That's where our affections need to be. I need to feel good about myself as if I can accomplish this. I can tackle this sin on my own. You can't. It's the Holy Spirit that he's given within you through repentance and faith coming ever before his throne reason that we come together to listen to his word, to be reminded of our sin is so that we can be brought to repentance, to be convicted of sin, be taught to live holy lives. And the more we grow in the knowledge of the truth and more we come to realize what he has done to save us, it puts us in that place of humility where we understand my righteousness is not in what I've done. It is in what Christ has done for me. So then my job as a pastor is what? It's exactly what Paul says in Colossians 1.28 over the Colossians, he says it's to proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's all one. So first it's that. It governs what we teach. Second, it, it, it explains our lives together and that they are meant to help us live up to the oath that we swore in baptism. That's why we're brought together, edifying and correcting one another, is so that you and I can live up to the oath that we swore in those waters. Because sinful desires are still very real. I still am a child of Adam until the day I die. I am now a child of both Adam and of God through the blood of Christ. But I'm still a child of Adam until I die. So, all my sinful desires are real. And so what that means is that in our life together, we have been given the task of making disciples. And Jesus defines what that means in the Great Commission, where he says we are sharing the gospel with people, and we are teaching them to obey all that he has commanded of us. So we're sharing the gospel with them. We're bringing them to the point of conversion. And then we are helping them obey or live up to the oath that they swore when they became believers. Let me just say this abundantly clear. If you're not doing either one of those, you're not in any way fulfilling the Great Commission. If you're not currently in a relationship with someone where you are sharing the gospel with them, 
hoping that they will come to Christ or are currently in a relationship with someone where they are owning their sin, you are teaching them how to live a godly life, you are not in any way making disciples. We are called as a church to make disciples, and that calling falls on each and every one of us. But it's not just people out there. It's people in here. Governs the way we live together. We made an oath in the waters. And now we're coming together to help each other live up to that oath. Last, and this applies directly to our congregation. There are things for us as a church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, that probably used to be a part of our past that need to be brought back into the future, namely church covenants. Remember church covenants? Remember this? This used to be abundantly clear to people, church covenants. They used to be printed in hymnals. People would open them. They would read the church covenant there together, and they would be derived straight from Scripture, and they would be promises that we are making that are derived straight from Scripture, that are implicit there, that we are making to each other. We promise to live godly lives together. We promise to destroy the bickerness, bickering and the, the sinfulness and the, the bitterness that, that clings to us, that, that exists between us. We promise to kill all those things. It was a series of, of pledges that we are promising as a church body to do. But largely they fell out of favor because they explain how one falls into church discipline. What happens when somebody refuses to live up to the oath that they made in the water? That's what church discipline is for. Well, as soon as that became an unpopular thing, church covenants went out the window. They do and they will be something that we address here in the future. Covenants that we make together to live together as a body that inform how we respond to each other. Because the goal of our lives together is based on the oath that we took in the waters of baptism. And it is to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to commit to live our lives as lives of holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you do in and through us. We thank you also for the work that you do in this world in spite of us. I, I recognize my own shortcomings in evangelism, my own shortcomings in disciple-making. I can do more. I recognize that that is fault in myself, my own heart, in our church body, even in churches outside this local congregation. And yet, in spite of that, you have brought people to, to you. Thank you. And Father, in, in spite of us neglecting our role of making disciples, you have convicted people of sin, and brought them out of hiding and into light in your congregation. Thank you. So much of the work 
around us, you, you've done in spite of our inactivity and our lethargy. Pray, Father, that you would ignite in us heart of desire, that you would help us put to death the deeds of the flesh, that we may live in accordance with the oath that we swore in the waters of baptism. Pray all of this in Jesus' name.